Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajat Ali. And I am so beyond, so beyond excited to welcome, as I just said before, a real journalist with real integrity who believes in the sanctity of our democracy and the power of media, Soledad O'Brien, to join Waj and I on Democracy-ish. I will turn it to you, Waj, to give an actual proper, you know, <laughs> bio introduction as opposed to my fangirl. Oh my God, like it's the, real. Like it's, Twitter, it's Twitter. It's <laughs> Twitter. It's Twitter in real life that I'm so it's, excited I'll about. I'll do the professional fanboy intro uh, yes. and I'll do it in my movie phone voice. Soledad O'Brien is host. Yeah. For matter of fact, with Soledad O'Brien, a nationally syndicated weekly talk show produced by Hearst Television, she's co-host of the radio show and podcast Everyday Wealth and chairwoman of Soledad O'Brien Productions, and she's also the executive producer of the upcoming new documentary The Rebellious Life of Miss Rosa Parks out on October 20, October 19th, streaming on Peacock. I think that was pretty impressive. I think I have a second That was here. amazing. Oops. Extremely <laughs> impressive, actually. Hollywood, that, Hollywood, here you come. Yeah, I know. In <laughs> cases, podcasting doesn't work. Uh, this was my backup. This is why my parents came all the way from Pakistan. They're like, my son <laughs> one day will become the movie phone man. Uh, <laughs> Soledad, the first time I met you, I remember we were at uh, we were we were sitting at the Al Jazeera America table. Small violin. Can someone please play the small violin? Mm -hmm. And and we were um, at an award ceremony. And you were rocking a sari, and all the Indians were like, Soledad O'Brien's here. And she's Which wearing was an a interesting sari. Thing, right? Because, I mean, we talk a lot about cultural appropriation. And I went with my girlfriend, uh, Prashanti, um, and she's like, Oh my gosh, you need to wear a sari to this. This would be great. I'm going to help you put it on. But, you know, you always are kind of like, Is it really great? Are people fine? Like, I'm not sure if you decided you were going to get cornrows in your hair or you're you know like i could see people being like huh so i haven't done that yet i haven't done that yet <laughs> with the, wow uh with braids huh i'm not sure so i it doesn't always translate but she assured me that it was a a sign of respect for a culture that that was a, a good thing to do um because in some cultures it's not a cool thing to do and so yeah plus also 
I'm not sure how I feel about wearing an outfit that only reason it stays on is because it's just tucked in well. Like that is. <laughs> but I just, I just want the listeners to know and Danielle to know that like she rocked the sari and everyone was like, we love Soledad even more cute. now. She it became an honorary cute. desi. You know, you're talking about cultural respect. And, and and we often talk about on this show the lack of disrespect our cultures get. You're a proud biracial mm-hmm. woman, and you, you know, you were anchoring and leading uh, CNN during the time when many people who looked like us were not front and center. I mean, you were like when, when you know Dania and I say what we say. You know, we try to be respectful of the guests, but we also try to be very sincere. Like you're like Soledad O'Brien. Like everyone knows, like Soledad O'Brien. Oh wow. You're talking to Soledad, really? How is she in real life? It's like, it's this thing because you represent not just fantastic journalism, but you represent that person from our communities who cared and did it right. And now you're in this really interesting position where this young generation sees you as Soledad O'Brien. She gives zero Fs on Twitter. and She calls out everyone. I like Soledad. That I have a paying job that like I just like exist on Twitter, which is kind of amusing. Uh, yeah, but it's I, it's it's a refreshing, right? Because people see you and they're like, oh, "Why can't journalists do what Soledad is telling them to do on Twitter?" And so the first question I have is, and it's a question many of our community members have because they're not in it like we are, but they observe with frustration. If you had to do an audit of cable news journalism right now at this moment, Soledad, as a professional who spent her career in it. What would be your analysis and and conclusion of the audit? Uh, I think cable news covers disasters extremely well. So the audit would be excellent when it comes to um, the the time leading up to the hurricane hitting Florida Mm. um, and through and then aftermath. And actually, I think uh, broadcast news um, as well. I think that that was really impressive. I'm not a big fan of standing out in a hurricane, although I've done it. You know, because I always feel like someone's just going to get whomped by a big old road sign that gets dislodged. You saw a lot of craziness. But for the most part, I think cable does that well. I think what cable does poorly is, and broadcast does pretty poorly, is political coverage. Um, is just often not good, not contextual, not... Um, it, it delves into a lot of gossip, which means that often journalists are being used sort of on by one side or the other side. And so I think... Generally, our political coverage um, is very poor uh, and and not very explanatory. I think a lot of mm-hmm. Americans don't understand how systems work, but we we treat it like a football game versus a. So there's this game called football. Today, I'm going to explain how football works and why it was created. Right? We instead just get in there and be like, ah, oh, there's this team and this team, and here they're going at it without any context. And I, I think that's a giant flaw. You know, I, it's funny because. We've all watched um, uh, uh, the media turn information into entertainment, right? We have watched, you know, reality TV infiltrate our politics. And I'm, of course, um, the resident pessimist on this show and just in life, Um, (laughs) because I believe that the media, regardless of broadcast or cable, that their coverage of politics is purposeful. I believe that they are purposefully um, providing a lack of contents, a lot, of, a lack of context and information to the public because it doesn't serve their bottom line. And I also think that when we think about 
who is directing these newsrooms, who is sitting in the C-suites, is it... Um, does it matter to them or is it detrimental to them to wake up the masses in a way to their own power? So the question that I have for you is, do you believe that they just don't do a good job or do you believe that them doing a bad job in this particular area is a part of a larger strategy? So I'm going to answer that with a story. Many years ago I when I worked this. on the Today Show, but I, uh, I, I worked in local news at KRON-TV in San Francisco, but I used to help do stuff for the Today Show, and my show came on before the Today Show. And um, and one of the things that would happen was when people, but back then it was Bryant Gumbel and Kitty Kirk were anchoring the newscast, that the Today Show. And every so often when someone would be mad at something, they would call up KRON-TV, right? They'd call up their station and yell. I want to speak to Bryant. I want to, and you know, and I was kind of like, it just doesn't really work like that. And they'd say, well, I was interviewed in my, I was interviewed for a man on the street interview and they didn't use it. And I used to think like, <laughs> I know you think there's a system that's keeping you out, but actually it's far more likely that the tape just got lost, right? Or the intern forgot to log it, or they really were running out of time. So they logged the first three people that they got and you just were number six. And so I, I say that to say, I don't think it's about, um, Yes, it's about not serving the bottom line, but I think it's in a different way than you think. I think it's about ratings, ratings, ratings. Everybody mm. needs to keep their job ratings, right? So there's no one thinking like, well, what if this story wakes the masses? They're thinking, but you know what? Is it sexy enough? Is it interesting enough? Mm. Is it going to be entertaining enough? So in a way, it's, it's, it's a little more stupid than I think you're giving them credit for. Can I just, I want to ask a follow-up real quick, Waj, which is this. When I think about sexy and maybe because I am a political nerd and like cut my teeth, you know, on the Hill and in Washington, D.C., when I see our Capitol building for the first time being breached, which didn't happen during the Civil War, and I'm seeing smoke billow out from the top of it and people building a gallows and calling for the hanging of the vice president of the United States, what doesn't scream ratings and keeping people's eyeballs to the screen other than that. Like, and, how, that, that, like was good ratings. that was good ratings, right? That people, I mean, we were all glued to that. So the question you're really asking is like, how do we cover that? Right? Because mm -hmm. that was an unfolding live event. Those always get great ratings, especially in cable. So then it's now it's in the legal stage, right? And that's the stage that gets a little more complicated, a little more boring, a more talking head. So I, I'm with you. I, I actually spent a lot of time trying to talk people into, and I believe it's true, that a lot of these stories that are interesting, just when you get into the nuts and bolts of how something works. So for example, one of the top rated shows for matter of fact was we flew to Puerto Rico, did an entire show based on the number of people who were trying to get off the grid and get solar power because they knew Puerto Rico's grid was basically useless and so likely to be compromised even in a small storm. Like if you can't imagine yourself running into a news director's office being like, well, do I have a story for you? The grid in Puerto Rico and how people are getting solar power. Like it wouldn't work. But our, our show that had millions, literally 2 million viewers watched a show wow. that was 100% about Puerto Rico and the grid. Um, and so I think there's a, a misnomer of what actually sells. I think people, our, our show has been very successful. And one reason I think is because we do a lot of context, right? We want to explain. Mm -hmm. what, most people just don't understand. 
and I think news skips ahead to the the conflict. So yeah, the, the the thing unfolding is insane. We all watched it, but now that it's in the talking head stage, they have a real problem. They think making it entertaining is this yelling congressman versus this mm-hmm. yelling congressman, right? So conflict sells. So you get into a well, there's no conflict anymore. It's now down to understanding. And I would argue that conflict certainly can sell, but also people want to understand issues and understand what's at the heart of things. So I'm with you and I'm not a, I'm not a, a political nerd at all. And I didn't work on the Hill and I've been to the Hill with my kids as a tourist. And that's about it. You know, a couple of interviews here and there. Um, but I, I think we really fail our viewers when we don't try to explain how something happened. Um, and, and, you know, and, and why we play this, we play a game of football, right? It's literally yep. a sport. It is a sport and you root for sides. And again, I don't think it's because, well, the masses, if we do this right, the masses will uprise. And so we are going to do it wrong. I think it's just, we're lazy and we're cheap and we don't really understand mm. how people get, you know, need information. So we'll just do this lame thing. And Oh yeah, conflict. People like conflict. Put two people up against each other. This guy should be as far to the left as possible. And this one should be as far to the right as possible. And they'll just yell at each other for four minutes. You know, it just I think it's I, I think you give them more credit when you say, like they're doing it for a really intentional, thoughtful reason. There is intention, but it's just around, I Money. think this will sell, so we're gonna do it. And I, I think you see that sometimes in movies. Every so often mm. it's so hard to get a movie made. And then you see a movie that's really like absurdly stupid, and you think, with all the layers that have to go through and hoops to jump, how did this thing get made? It's, and I like kind of stupid movies. So like, I'm not talking about, you know, a lot of super picky. And you just think like that at some point it was just this, no one really tried. It was just lame and and lazy and it's almost hard to get across. But, you know, people I think don't um, really understand what works uh, for a market. Um, And certainly I've seen that in my entire career in news. Yeah. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Act Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts.
you know, me and Danielle are, are going to fight at the end. Uh, we're taking bets right now. Uh, it's going to be an MMA fight. Uh, I can only use judo, and then Danielle can only use chokehold. So just put in your bets right now because we need the ratings. <laughs> you know, when it comes to you, we're talking about spectacle. We're talking about sensationalism. Uh, we're talking about like you know this type of sports race. While we're talking about the defense of democracy that is under attack, Soledad, right now, literally as we speak, and and a large part of this cannot be singularly uh, blamed, but the, the the shift really for CNN was the introduction of Zucker as president. He's since left, right? He's been replaced by Chris Licht. Um, and John Malone is a shareholder, and we've talked about this, where they've openly said, oh, we have to play by the middle. We have to court Republicans. I am a CNN alum. I remember I was there for a year right before the pandemic. And, and what people don't realize oftentimes is in the green room, and what really bothered me about this, and, and I just want you to like talk to us about like behind the scene, like how this things get it gets cooked, the meal gets cooked. What really bothered me was, you know, I was always civil to the people I had to go like debate about my worth as a human being, as a Muslim during the Muslim ban. I was always nice. We were told always to like talk about families. I'm like, fine. I drank my coke. I don't raise my voice. I was good to everyone, professional. Many of the Trump supporters in the green room, we found out hated Trump. They're all frauds for the most part, right? Then we'd get on TV. It'd be, like you said, left, right, right? And I'm sitting here thinking like, this is not a left, right issue. We're talking about the defense of democracy, what's happening, right? But it was allegedly good for ratings. And now we're seeing literally CNN in the crosshairs of MAGA. They want to kill CNN employees. And CNN says, you know what? We're going to court you Republicans and kiss your butt. Can you explain what's, I mean, and, and the thing is this, I know you're a former CNN employee. You know, I was there for a year and I'm going to just go out and say this, guys. I've always said this publicly. I had a great time at CNN. People were nice to me. I respect a lot of folks that work there. No bitter grapes. I had my one year. I just want them to do better. That's why I'm critical. But Explain to me how this gets cooked behind the scenes when it comes to political coverage, especially in this moment. And I believe you might share my frustration because I read your tweets. <laughs> I uh, I love that you say cook the meal where the rest of us would say how the sausage is sausage made. Sausage is made. But I totally <laughs> I'm, that. I'm a Muslim. I'm a Muslim. That's what's making me laugh. Like there's a whole other way to think about it because... <laughs> Who wants to know about how the sausage is made? If you're a Muslim, you're like, you wouldn't care about how the sausage is made. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, I, I, what, what, in a way, you sound naive to me. Because this mm. is how, it's not just who the network books, it pays you money. It pays you money to think one thing and to say another, right? There's no version. Anybody who goes on television and says, well, that's a really thoughtful question. It's kind of nuanced, so let me explain a little. Right, boom, done. They'll never be booked again. Boring. Again, you know, like that doesn't people believe. There's no ratings in that. And so, and I know I've had friends who, um, a friend of mine is a principal, right? And they'll call them up and say, hey, we need a person who's going to say, you know, the teacher should uh, be fired because we have the other side where the teacher should blah, 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 right? And the and he's like, well, it's much more complicated than that. I mean, the teacher might might be fired or maybe he should be fired, right? It's just very, but you need the people who are going to speak in these absolutes to make that debate better. And if you want to get paid, then you better deliver or they will find somebody else. I once, when I left CNN, I was asked to go on um, Chris Matthews show on MSNBC. 
talk about uh, Fidel Castro had died. Talk about Fidel Castro. So I, uh, I did a lot of reporting in Cuba. And it was always interesting to me that, um, and my mom is Cuban, that people who really hated Castro in a lot of ways also were mourning his death, like in a big way. It was like very contradictory. So uh, right before I went on, probably a minute before, um, they said in my ear, oh, you're going to be on with Jose Diaz Balart. Mm. Um, and, and I was just like, oh, oh, like uh, oh, I was going to be up against Jose Diaz. I'm like up against, like I'm, I'm just, you know, and so like, that's the mindset. So one, that's an ambush. I, you just, it's not okay to set people up. I, I, I like Jose fine. I mean, I, you know, I don't know him very well, but you know, so he came out and his take was dictators are bad, which you realize leaves me the take of dictators are <laughs> dictators good. Are good. Mother, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, actually, Jose. <laughs> my mother left Cuba. <laughs> when Castro came into power, she left for good and, and really not to go back. So um, to live. So, uh, you know, so I was, I was like, oh, this is a terrible. And I was trying to explain, like, to understand for a lot of black Cubans, right, Castro's coming improve their lives in some way and also wreck their lives in lots of ways, right? Mm. It's, it's very complicated. Batista bad, Castro bad, dictators bad, let me be clear. And I just kept saying to him, like, I agree with you. We agree. We agree. You know, and I, I never went on that again, um, obviously, but also I never, um, uh, you know, I, I, I understand what they were going for, right? Which is like two people fighting. And it, it, as opposed to educating people, like there's 400,000 Cubans in this square mourning a guy whom if you went and asked them individually, they would say he has ruined Cuba. We love America. We would love a relationship with America. So explain that to me. Explain the contradiction. Mm. Okay, you don't have to learn. I kept saying, do you want me to explain this thing? And they just no. They wanted a fight to fill that five minutes. And so I think it's you have to be willing. I wasn't being paid, but as you know, a lot of the contributors are paid, right? You have to be, you understand you're not going to be invited back if you don't come and say, yes, I will take this side. I hate Trump, but I know the talking points are this, 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 and this. I love Trump, but I know the talking points are this, 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 and this, right? right? Like they understand the game and it's a game and it's a game that pays pretty well. That that gig can pay, you know, minimum a hundred thousand bucks for a year, you know, which is a good chunk of change and you get on a lot. It's a good way to pitch your book or whatever you're working on. So I think it's naive to think that people think of it anything other than it's a good platform to get to the next thing that they want to get to. But the cost is so much, right? The yeah. cost of the game is so much. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate, um, but I don't, I think that they think they're cogs in a machine, right? Like their little cost. It's a little bit like, um, you know, well, I'm just doing this little piece of it. So it's not so bad when actually all those pieces together. Yes, it would be really nice if, again, journalists and shows booked people who wanted to explain, can you explain to me? And I give speeches all over the place. And I'll say to groups, whether they're groups in red states or groups in blue states, like, wouldn't you want to understand this issue? You know, like not have two people scream about it. Just use that time to like explain to me what they're even fighting over. Explain to me, oh, so they, they can't say out loud. How come this person is able to say out loud that he hates Castro? Like that seems... Uh, you know, contradictory to what I've heard. Like they just, you know, people don't want to teach people. It's really unfortunate. I think that that's one of the reasons why, and I, and I, I feel like I sound old saying it, but that newer media and social media platforms have been better for people because there is actually more time in a podcast, for instance, to be able to unpack and explain 
um, to people who want to listen, right, than there is in a four-minute soundbite where it's you, a host, and three other guests that each get roughly, you know, if you're lucky, 90, 60 to 90 seconds. So I, I think that the 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 platform of cable news and broadcast television does not allow for um, us to be able to be in a place to unpack. And so my question for you then is, as we have seen so much devolve in our democracy, but also in our media, and I would say over definitely over the last six years, but absolutely over the last, you know, the last 10 plus, what do you think that the responsibility is of this changing face of media, you know, to elevate alarms and alert the public to what is at stake right now? Because I don't think that the masses as a whole really truly understand what is at stake. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there's for people who are covering politics, I think there's a tremendous responsibility and I think many are taking it on. And I think for others, they, they're, you know, working in the opposite way. Um, it's it really is in some ways a game for the hearts and minds. Um, and I think in a populace that's not super well educated, a large swath, you know, it's, um, where people can, can say, you know, they can say things like I, I support, uh, aid coming to Florida. I'm the governor of Florida. Aid should come to Florida and then literally turn around and vote against it or the senator, you know, senator from Florida, whatever. You know, I, I think it's a very interesting, um, it's a really interesting way to kind of play your audience, right? So if you look at someone like uh, DeSantis, right, who literally should be saying, I'm going to support us getting aid, um, you know, and then when he has the opportunity you know, actually to, I think it was Marco Rubio and, um, it was Marco Rubio and it was, um, who's the other Senator from the state Scott. of Florida? Scott, Scott. Right. right. So Rick Scott. So it's, uh, you know, and, and DeSantis will go on the air and, 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 you know, talk about the gratitude about the aid when actually the senators from his own state have, have voted against yep. giving aid to the state, right? So you're literally literally playing, <laughs> literally playing two games simultaneously, but the audience doesn't know. The audience likes, you know, how does he look on TV? How does he sound? Um, and I think journalists fail in their ability to hold people accountable and say, you know, so let's talk about why you did this. So it's, it's you know, I think it's a real challenge. I was in, uh, I was in Texas. I was in Houston this weekend visiting my nephew you know, and I was talking to a woman who was just like, I'm just so sick of politics. I hate Abbott and I'm not going to vote for Beto. And I just, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, and like her whole thing is, I just think we should go pick people from neighborhoods and the people in the neighborhoods would decide how the government should run. And you're like, well, you really don't understand how government runs. But I get what she's saying, right? She wants people who who are connected to people right. to right. be willing. She feels like she's been left, her communities have been left out of um out of progress. And, you know, and so I think she's right in how she feels, certainly. But the idea that she really can't tell just the difference between any of the candidates, you know, that's she's not, you know, she doesn't want to hear, she doesn't want to listen to the radio about it. She doesn't want to hear about it. She doesn't care about their positions. She's just mad. And she thinks politicians are bad. Mm. I don't think she's alone in that. I think for a lot of people, they're, they're frustrated. Uh, they're frustrated with the pace at which government change happens. So, I understand why people are confused and maybe uneducated. And I also understand that the media often doesn't do a very good job of explaining. People talk a lot about gerrymandering, right? 
most people have no idea what gerrymandering yep. is. But if you literally yeah. to walk through the street and say, so just give me in vaguest of terms, what's your, like, they won't know, you know, but we don't sit there. I mean, we do on our show and say, so how did gerrymandering get its name? And what is it exactly? And who does mm. it? Is it Republicans? Is it Democrats? Is it everybody? And why do they do it? Like, what's the point? You know, and why is it bad? Why is it bad right. for democracy? Yeah. But that's what people need to know. But very rarely do you actually explain things to people that way. And and that's an intentional choice. Soledad, you know, for, for this particular um, conversation, because you're Soledad O'Brien, the OG, we actually <laughs> have Q questions from our audience. And we actually oh, got questions that actually ties into exactly what you're saying is because one of the problems, oftentimes, the frustration that the average Jose and Jane have when they watch political journalism, right, or they watch Meet the Press, is that number one, these uh, these anchors, these reporters, don't ask these questions of politicians. Uh, they don't get the in-depth explanation, but they don't do follow-ups either, right? And so here's actually a really good question that we got from one of our listeners, Alan Elrod. My question for Soledad, what's the follow-up question in political journalism that she most wishes good interviewers would ask? It really depends on the original question, of course. But I think currently a good question would be, so why did you vote against it? Right. And you tee the person Mm. up. Mm -hmm. You're going to be getting a zillion dollars from the federal government for this, this and this. We've seen the pictures of the damage. Tell me a little bit about what that money is going to go to. Oh, my gosh. Soledad, we need this. We need this. We need this. Right. So then the then the follow up is. So then why did you vote against it? But you voted against it. I think everybody needs to know that you voted against it. Why would you vote against that aid? Now, it carried anyway. It went through. So you are getting the aid. But aren't you essentially taking advantage of a thing that you literally did not support? Right? Like, it's it's in. <laughs> I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And, and that's not hard, right? That's just your standard, um, I think. It's uh, not hard at all. You just did it. <laughs> right. I think Dana Bash was interviewing um, DeSantis, I believe. And she sort of said, well, you know, he said, well, there was a the last time when he voted against um, aid, I guess uh, he, he, you know, he said, well, there was a museum that was going to be, you know, and she said, well, the roof of the museum was damaged. It was Marco Rubio. It was Marco Rubio. Right. Why am I confusing DeSantis and Rubio today? They're all the same after a while. They're all the same. But like, uh, it wasn't a very strong pushback, right? It wasn't, it was sort of like, now she's on the back foot saying, well, the, the damage, it's a, it's a museum that's had its roof damage, as opposed to having the conversation bigger, which is you, in Florida, there's a lot of stuff that's going to get repaired from damage. So, so why are you being contradictory? Why? And I don't think she really nailed him on that and made it clear. Uh, I'm sure you saw the interview where she, you know, that, that, that this was basic hypocrisy 101. And by the way, I think you should do that regardless of who is the uh, elected official, right? Like, call out hypocrisy. Mm. Um, I don't think the media does that very well. And I understand that. I think if you want people to come back, right, if you want Marco Rubio on again, and you are competing with a bunch of other shows, you know, you probably have to be, you know, strong, but not like, kill it in the interview. And that was my sense is that even the follow ups or the original questions are not very necessarily very strong. And I keep confusing poor Marco Rubio and poor, uh, DeSantis uh, today, Governor DeSantis. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, they all have the same talking points. Um, so maybe my confusion right. is valid. Um, but it's really the hypocrisy, I think, is particularly mm. going to the senators. And the hypocrisy deserves being called out. And the reality is, is that 
we fall into this trap of, oh, it's not the right time because the people in Florida are suffering. It's not the right time to like ask these questions. And the reality is, is that there are always going to be people suffering. There were people that were suffering in Hurricane Sandy when DeSantis decided that he was going to vote against their ability to get the the funds that they need, right? There are always people that are suffering. And so there's never a good time, but there's always the right time to be honest. Um, Switching gears with the few minutes that we have. If I can just jump in and say, and remember this was something that that Dr. King talked about, right? That Mm. fierce urgency of now, because that is, it would behoove some reporters to point out that historically, right? These, the best way to kill a sense of urgency is to say, oh, you know, we totally agree. But now is not the time. Let's give a Mm -hmm. little, you know, and, and so that's been done through, through history. You know, it's a, a really good way of, of kind of chopping off at the knees, kind of a sense of, of anger of people who want answers. And you see it constantly. And especially the thing I find interesting is when the people who are at the center of it, for example, look at that school shooting in Uvalde, right? Where, hmm. you know, everyone will be like, it's not the right time. And the parents are like, no, actually, it's exactly the right time. It's ex- it literally- It was the right, right time yesterday. It was right. the right time yesterday. It was the right time before my child was, was in a was school shooting. Was gunned down. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think it's, it's, um, it is very, um, it's a it's a mechanism, right? It's it's just a it's right. a, a bit of a trick, I think. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You know, and speaking, I'm so glad that you you brought up MLK. It's almost like if it's if it's the perfect segue into talking about your documentary. Oh, thank um, you. And it's a perfect segue into talking about like remembering without any prep either. With, it I, just I happened know, it naturally. Was just, it was just so good. Um, so you are the executive producer of a new documentary that is going to be out later this month, October 19th, "The Rebellious Life of Ms. Rosa Parks." Talk to us about this documentary and why now is the perfect time, frankly, um, to be lifting up her voice and her her work. Yeah, there's the author of the book by the same name as a woman named Jean Theo Harris. And, um, and I think she's always very frustrated that people have this concept of Rosa Parks, um, which is very both antiquated and somewhat misogynistic and also wrong, you know, like that Rosa Parks on this one day, just this <laughs> accent of history, just her feet hurt. And she just decided in that moment that she just wasn't going to get out of her seat. And when you I mean, actually- Solely that, that's how it's taught. That's literally how it's taught. 
Oh, literally. <laughs> I'm not exactly. We're doing a lot of literally today. We're not yeah, cursing, literally. but we're saying literally a lot. Um, a lot. So I think, um, so Jean Thea Harris used to um, tweet out, you know, like things like things people don't know about Rosa Parks, because I think out of frustration, like, you know, like, here's all this stuff as a, she's a, a, a an academic, um, you know, that, that she knows that people don't know. And I, I think... Um, so our, our directors of the project um, got in touch with her and then we were able to get the rights to the book. And, and so they um, really wanted to tell that story of this woman whose life actually has been one of a rebel from the time mm. she was born. Uh, the documentary is really focused on her own words and kind of she wrote a lot and there's not a lot of, of video of her speaking. And it's pretty interesting if you think about it. Like we really haven't heard Rosa mm. Parks. The first time I heard it, I was like, oh, it's not a voice that I've heard very much. And so, you know, what you learn about Rosa Parks and her life is so different than what you were taught and what your kids are being taught. Rosa Parks was a rebel from the get-go. Rosa Parks uh, was friendly with the Black Panthers. She liked Dr. King and also Malcolm X. Rosa wow. Parks was literally, uh, you know, just absolutely part of the mechanism to try to end white supremacy. And when she was asked you know, when she, she said, you know, people got that wrong. When I said I was tired, I wasn't, I wasn't any more tired than any typical workday. I was just tired of being treated badly. Mm -hmm. Like she was tired in that way. And I think it has made her a very comfortable, you know, mm -hmm. sweet little old lady as opposed Sanitized. to, absolutely. As opposed to a woman who worked for a lifetime, you know, as a rebel, to trying to, you know, change her circumstances and that of her people. You know, when she left, um, when she, when, when after the, the bus boycott in um, Montgomery, she, she could never work again. They have, we, we have a, 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 um, a piece of paper that has her tax returns from one year where she and her husband had made $700, just under $700, oh. you know, so she just literally could not find a job, right? And you don't think of, there was no one who was taking care of her from the civil rights movement. People were giving, you know, speeches everywhere. She was not benefiting from that. And so you realize like to the degree that um, the cost, the personal cost of what it was for her and the impersonal importance of the, yeah. of the struggle, um, you know, and what she gave up. The other interesting thing, you know, people talk a lot about Claudette Colvin, who was the first um, young woman who sat, wouldn't get up out of her seat on the bus. Um, she was, I think, 15 years old, if I'm not mistaken. She was a student of Rosa Parks. You know, they worked together. And, they, and they never make the connection. Uh, you know, we just don't learn about it. If you're lucky, right. you might learn about the young woman who sat on the bus before Rosa Parks. But you very rarely learn. I mean, it was news to me that the two of them were connected, that that Claudette was in Rosa Parks had a, a school for young women and did, you know, training for young students. I mean, she was just very, very active. And so we just thought it was important to tell the story of the real Rosa Parks and her real yeah. rebellious life um, because it's important. And I think it's also important to remember that civil rights doesn't just happen accidentally. Like one day a good hearted yes. person does a no. thing and it all falls into place and then it all is good. It's like people working very hard and often certainly for women who worked in the civil rights movement of the fifties and sixties, they get written out of the history. So Oladad, uh, I've my, my producer is telling me you have a hard out in two minutes. Your publicists are on me. I know you got to go. 
but I'm going to exercise, I'm going to exercise old school AGM equity and the compliments I gave you. Sorry for this one last question. Go for it. What, uh, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Cut off the yeah, what, are they, what are they going to do to me? What are they going to do to me? You've already <laughs> taken everything from me. Do what it. are you going to do? Uh, the last question I have is, look, the story they just mentioned was, you know, the fact that you were able to use your cloud, your hard-earned cloud to put this story of Rosa Parks out there. That could not have been done uh, by others. It, it was done by a POC executive producer who knows our history and knows our people and knows how much has been excised, how much has been ignored. And for many of those who are in the game right now, POC journalists and reporters who are trying their best to swim in this ocean of whiteness, and you know how tough it is, especially for women of color. What advice do you have for them in this particular game in order to do it well, in order to do it right, in order to maintain their integrity in this spectacle, in this sportsmanship game where they're up against ratings and crappy producers and people who don't give context and the people who erase us? The advice you have for those folks to hopefully walk in your footsteps and tell the stories the way they're meant to be told. Yeah, I think for every crappy producer, there are great producers, right? So you got to kind of find the great ones. And then you also have to make sure that every single thing you do is high quality. Because what allows you the luxury at the end is the fact that what you've done is good work. I don't think that I could have started a production company if I didn't have a reputation for doing docs that both did well and were very... Uh, accurate and we're real truth tellers and just had we're of high quality. And so it's very hard. It's very easy to, to do the shortcut. It really is. It's, mm. it's, and it can come at cost, you know, nobody likes the person who's like, Ugh, I don't like it. Let's do it again. Ugh, could be better. Let's do it again. You know, but I, I have found that in my career, very important. Sometimes at the beginning of your career, keep your mouth shut, literally go figure out where everybody is and where the power really lies and who really wants to do certain things that might be of interest to you. I think if you walk in the door as a new reporter, you know, saying, here's what needs to happen, you won't learn a lot, but you will make a lot of enemies pretty fast. And then at some point, you know, things start to shift and you can say, well, I'm interested in this project and you join it, or I'm interested in that, or people actually turn to you and say, so what's your perspective? You live in blah, 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 or you're from blah, blah, blah. Tell me about it. And, you know, you start getting work colleagues that really, you know, teams where people are really um, coming together to create real value in that team. It's very doable. I mean, it's a very exciting thing in TV news when you get together. Uh, the show that we do, matter of fact, for the, the this new documentary that's going to stream on Peacock, right? It's always people sitting down together saying, here's how I think we make this great. But you have to get to that quality first. Right. And it takes a long time. So sometimes people don't like that I tell younger people, just keep your mouth shut. Watch, <laughs> learn, listen, try to figure it out. And then as you go along, you'll be in a position to really add tremendous value, I think. And for people who've been in the business longer, seek out those colleagues who want to do interesting things too. You know, you can, you can, there's so many projects that can be done. I mean, you have a great platform. So go figure out, you know, who is the person in leadership? Who is the person who has to green light it? Who is the person I want to work with? Who's the editor I want to work with? Who's the, the photographer I want to work with? Like there's just great teams of people who all have good ideas. You just got to find those people. And the people who are, you know, fine with a, a, a schlocky job, well, then you just have to kind of do your best to avoid them. Soledad, we can't thank you enough for your time, for your energy, but for, you know, your leadership in the field of media and journalism that the both of us have been able to, to follow, to watch, um, and to feel like it's possible. 
um, for people like us to continue to do this work and actually be taken seriously uh, and be heard. So we just want to genuinely appreciate you uh, as we close out this episode. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Wajahat Ali. And again, everyone, watch the new documentary, The Rebellious Life of Miss Rosa Parks, which will be streaming on Peacock out on October 19th, executive produced by our very own Soledad O'Brien. We'll be back next week. If, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. Inshallah.